Open your Bibles again with me to Matthew chapter 18 this morning. Hopefully when you came in, you were able to secure a copy of the sheets as we are going through a series on forgiveness, a very important series. It's one of those things that I want to remind our church family of on a regular basis. I haven't done so in about four years. I, I share this material often when I'm out teaching or perhaps preaching at a conference I'm asked to cover this topic, and uh, it's near and dear to my heart through the years, and I want you to always be able to recall this. So we revisit it every few years, and I want you to have these notes. Some people ask me, what are your favorite books on forgiveness? And I think it's important that I share these with you, and you consider writing them down, and if you only could get one, I'll tell you which of, the one, which of those uh, books you should purchase if you get one. But I think if you want to go all the way back, I think it was into the 70s or 80s, a man by the name of Jay Adams wrote a book called From Forgiven to Forgiving. It's a great book, classic book in the biblical counseling world on forgiveness. It's kind of the, um, he didn't invent the doctrine of forgiveness, but he is one that has helped craft the language that we use to this very day. So that's Jay Adams from forgiven to forgiving. A second book that stands on the shoulders of Jay Adams' book is by an author that you may have heard of before, John MacArthur. John MacArthur wrote this book, I believe, in the 80s or maybe the 90s. It was probably the 90s. And it was called, in its original title, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness. I think in subsequent editions that title has shortened. I could be mistaken on that, but uh, you can go to Amazon search for Forgiveness MacArthur. This was a great book. It is a great book. The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness. I love that title. And what Dr. MacArthur does is he stands on the shoulders of Dr. Adams' book that was kind of foundational. Now, Dr. Adams and Dr. MacArthur are going to quibble on a few of the finer points of forgiveness, uh, but they are in overall agreement that forgiveness is, listen, conditional. They believe that what Jesus taught and in Matthew 18 and throughout Scripture is this, that forgiveness is conditional, not unconditional. And they also teach, uh, they, call what, they call it um, transactional forgiveness. That's another way of talking about conditional forgiveness by saying it's a transaction. Now, Adam started using that language. MacArthur affirms that language, and uh, as I do as well. But more recently, uh, probably within the last decade or so, we had a Michigander chime into this conversation of forgiveness, uh, Chris Bronze. At least I think he's still in Michigan. David Jesse's his buddy. Um, but Chris Bronze wrote a book for Crossway on forgiveness called Unpacking Forgiveness. Unpacking Forgiveness. And if you were just to buy one book, I would encourage you to buy Chris Bronze's book, Unpacking Forgiveness. Now, what Chris Bronze does is he gives a, an updated uh, reaffirmation of what Jay Adams has written and what John MacArthur has written. He stands in line with them on conditional forgiveness and transaction forgiveness. That's the language we use. And it's a fantastic book with great illustrations on forgiveness. He'll call it a gift that you, you offer to someone, but they have to reach out and, 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 and receive it or He'll talk about a handshake that you extend to someone. It's a legitimate offer, but 
The other person has to, hand, has to reach out and grab a hold of what you're offering, your hand. That's what forgiveness is. We offer it, we're postured, and when they ask for it, we offer it, but they have to receive that, that gift by acknowledging how they've, they've sinned against us. We're going to talk a lot about that in the future. But another thing about Chris Braun's book and why I commend it to you is not only that it is, it is tight theologically and faithful biblically, but at the end of the book, he does what none of the other books do, and he, he, uh, um, he, he lists out names that you and I would know from the conservative evangelical world, John Piper, uh, Lake Duncan, some of these guys uh, from different denominations, evangelical denominations, and he just gives you quotes from them on forgiveness that lets you know that we're not on an island here. These are great um, helps in the body of Christ, these, these scholars and commentators and preachers and pastors and teachers who say the same thing we do, that forgiveness is conditional. It's a transaction. So it's a great book, and I, I commend all three to you, but if you just had to buy one, I'd recommend Chris Bronze because he's standing on the shoulders of the other guys. But what I want to do to open our study and to jump back into study with you this week is I want to give you a quote from that first book, that foundational book by Jay Adams and his book from, uh, from Forgiven to Forgiving. And I have the quote right there in your notes. It's from that book. Follow along. Adams writes, Forgiveness is the oil that keeps the machinery of the Christian home and church running smoothly. In a world where even those who have been declared perfect in Christ still sin, there's much to forgive. Christians who must work together Closely find, them, or closely find themselves denting each other's fenders, now and then taking out a taillight or two, and at times even having head-on collisions. Under such conditions, forgiveness is what keeps things from breaking down completely. I love that quote. Forgiveness is the oil that keeps us running smoothly. You know, I, I, I immediately read that again. I don't know how many times I've read that, and I, I want to say, is he right? And I, and I really believe he is. You say, well, is it common, though, these, this, this taking out each other's fenders and taillights every once in a while in our Christian homes or, or even in a church like Calvary Baptist Church, is it common here? And the answer, again, is a fast yes. We don't just want to know how to forgive so we can say we know how to forgive. We need it here at Calvary and in other churches like ours. I guess the bigger question is, do we ourselves, the one sitting in your chair, do we need to grow in this area? And the answer there again is yes. That's why we are doing this journey of forgiveness. We're finding ourselves in Matthew 18 and and Jesus is teaching his disciples and singling out Peter in Peter's living room, I believe, with all the other disciples leaning in, and he's teaching how to forgive. If an offense has happened over there where that piano is, right, and I need to get to where the Christmas trees are over here, that's the point of actually forgiving. What's the journey look like? Is it just a matter of reciting a memorized line, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Is that it? Is that as deep as it goes? Or is there more to it? 
I believe our Lord has taken Peter and us on a journey towards forgiveness. This journey is precious to us here in Matthew 18. And as I said before in this series, I'll say again right now, I don't know how far you have to go to forgive that person that's in your mind. But I do know how you'll get there by following this text. Follow along as I remind you what we've covered and what's in front of us. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle, settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and then repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. You hear that phrase? Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out. There's a quick movement here. He just leaves the king's chamber. That's the movement of the text. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, and this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Have patience with me, and I will repay you. <laughs> but... He was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Where'd they have to go? Just back inside. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, a little bit different than compassion a few moments ago, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until... He should repay all that was owed him. And my heavenly Father will also do the same to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother 
from your heart. This is the journey. We've covered two stops on our journey so far. First of all, we, our first stop was called um, Admit Your Hesitancy. We are all naturally hesitant to forgive. We talked about the risk of forgiveness, the risk of insincerity, the risk of vulnerability, the risk of change, and the risk of exposure of our own sin. We found that those might be the places where we start before we can forgive someone, and that's with our own repentance as to why we're hesitant to show the same grace that was shown to us. And we saw at that first stop that we need to have a posture that's ready to forgive even before an offense happens. It's what defines us. It's a, it's a posture that is commanded by a forgiving God. It's constant. It's cultivated, and you can only learn to forgive well by being wronged and forgiving. It's a posture that's Christ-like. We hear Jesus on the cross showing his heart of forgiveness towards those who are actually keeping him on the cross. Those are the first, that's the first stop. Then we saw the second stop on forgiveness last week. It's a very important stop as well. We call that Remember Your Story. It's here that we found the the, the theme of this long parable with all the details in it, it still only has one main theme. And here's the main thing. I, you, are an unworthy servant forgiven an unpayable debt. And we found out that this guy in this parable, starting in verse 23, is us. It's, it's you. And how you've been forgiven 10,000 talents in a lifetime you could only earn a minuscule amount of that. But your problem was more than fiscal. Your, your problem was one of eternal proportions. And God forgave you. You were hopelessly accountable to a holy God. You desperately agreed with him that your sin is a debt to him. And all you could do is plead for mercy. And if you've come to Christ, he's forgiven you. There's complete acquittal. And we can never forget our story. You forget your story of your forgiveness, you'll never be able to forgive that person. Mark it down. But that brings us to our text this morning again for the third stop where I stand here, I guess, in the middle of the stage. Our third stop reminds me a lot of a proverb that's very near and dear to a lot of us here at Calvary Baptist Church. You've memorized it. We say it. The Iwana kids know it. It's Proverbs 4.23, where the writer says, Guard your heart with all diligence. Why? Because out of it come the issues of life. I'd say that's one of our defining verses here. And I want to give you a principle as we press into the text. And here's the principle. Lack of forgiveness on the outside reveals a significant heart problem on the inside. It does. You say, well, is this a rare reality today that Christians are hesitant to forgive other Christians and even have a posture? What about the unsaved when they sin against us? We're going to talk about that when we get to the fifth stop as well. Is it a common problem today for Christians to be hesitant to forgive? And the answer is contained in verse 23. Jesus says, for this reason, talking to Peter who likes to keep score, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. And using that word, Jesus is saying, Peter, 
you're part of a bigger problem because it's going to be a reality between my two advents. As I'm building my, the body of Christ, as I'm building my kingdom in the hearts of my followers, they're going to struggle to forgive. This is common. I guess the question you have to ask is, is there a problem in your chair with this? You and me. And I'll follow that up with another question. When you are wronged, when you are wronged in the church or in your home, when you're wronged just in general, does what comes out of your heart look anything like what comes out of the guy in our text? Guard your heart. That's the name of this third stop. Guard your heart. I want you to see in the time that remains, I want you to see clearly the four characteristics of the non-forgiver. The four characteristics of the non-forgiver. Characteristic number one. Do you see yourself here? Number one. There's a mirrored reaction of the world. A mirrored reaction of the world. If you're a non-forgiver and you claim to be a Christ follower and you won't forgive folks, you won't even have a posture of forgiveness, then you are looking more like the world than a disciple of Christ should look like. You say, where do you get that? Let's pick up our story. Now, it's a little difficult to, to read the next verse. We left off in verse 27. And don't you and I wish the story ended at verse 27? Wouldn't that have been a sweet ending? Forgiveness. That guy was forgiven 10,000 talents, and, and that was our story. We were forgiven of sin. I wish the story ended there. If you added more to the story, if you were telling this story, what would you have said next in verse 28? Probably something like this. This guy was forgiven so much. He was exhibit A on how to forgive. This king just, just cleaned his record out of his compassion and mercy. That's probably what your verse 28 would look like. It's how I preferred verse 28 to look like, but it's not what we read. The story sadly continues. Verse 28, But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who'd owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him. And he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. I mean, if you catch the markers here in the text, you see that, as I said, he turned from being in the presence of the forgiving king and suddenly realizing this, this fresh air of forgiveness and freedom. And, and there's a quick movement here in the text that as soon as he leaves the presence of the king, he finds someone who owes him, a fellow slave, mind you, who owes him a much smaller debt. This guy's an angry person. He might be the nicest person, or she might be the nicest person in the church lobby or at the Walmart counter, but at the heart level, an angry person can't hide. Proverbs 29, verse 22 says, An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man, a hot-tempered person, abounds in transgression. God, Proverbs has a lot to say about a mad, angry, non-forgiving person. 
Proverbs 12, verse 16, a fool's anger is known at once. Proverbs 14, verse 29, he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Proverbs 27, verse 4, wrath is fierce and anger is a flood. Proverbs 12, 16, a fool's anger is known at once. And even if we skip over in the wisdom literature to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9, we have a warning. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. This man in verse 28, though forgiven, has an anger problem. You know, we see him here in verse 28 that this fellow heir, fellow slave owed him a hundred denarii. And what was this first slave's response? It says he seized him. That's, that's physical contact. He seized him and began to choke him. Just to guess where his hand is. It's on his throat. And he says, pay back what you owe me. How long has he been out of the king's hall? Three minutes? Pay back what you owe me. This is called, actually, back in the day, debt violence. One New Testament scholar, Vincent, writes these words. Creditors, in that day, often dragged their debtors before the judge as the Roman law allowed them to, holding them by the throat. Interesting. I find it also interesting that he's squeezing harder and harder. What is going on here? Our Lord is teaching Peter and us something much more than just about physical assault. You and I watch the news. We read the blogs. We talk to the guy at the gas station. Our culture still does this. The world responds to offenses against them, whether they're real offenses or just perceived offenses. The world responds to offenses through reacting. We react, we react, we react. We may not strangle them, that's physical assault, but we may typically respond with other, other types of assault when someone wrongs us. Number one, we may respond with verbal assault. This is where we say, okay, it's on, man. I'm going to talk to you and, you're, and look you in the eye and spit in your eye, and, and I'm going to be very confrontive of you. There's an old ancient proverb that says that we have, one, uh, we have two ears and one mouth, which means we should listen more than we talk. An angry person closes their ears and opens their mouth. They're not listening. You ever have someone you're trying to even share verses with? Not to argue, and, and they're just not hearing you. Just, they, they have in their mind what they need to vomit on you. That's verbal assault. Or it might not be to your face, it might be to the prayer group later. Or to the folks on the cul-de-sac, or to other members of the family. I'm going to talk about them in a destructive way. That's verbal assault. But number two, there's also social assault. Social assault. This can go in one of two extremes as well. This can be, uh, that person sinned against me, so I'm going to isolate them. I'm going to excise them out of my moments. 
and, I, and, 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 and I'm going to excise myself away from them, and we're just going to go our separate ways. That's one form of social assault, but another form of social assault is to build teams. I'm going to get more people on my team thinking about them a certain way, and I know that they're doing the same towards me, and, and it gets ugly. This is grabbing them by the proverbial throat. This is unfriending. This is blocking. This is punishment. It might not be verbal assault or social assault, but number three, there's also this thing called motive assault. I don't know what better way to say that. But it's just that we believe we have a superpower that we can read their heart and we ascribe the worst possible motives to their heart and we question everything. That's grabbing by the throat. We might not go for their physical throat, but we might go for their public testimony and their personal integrity. It's how the world does it. But I just need to remind all of us on both sides of this desk that there's a timeless truth here. Any reaction is always sin. Do you remember those five words? Any reaction is always sin. You see, there's a difference between reacting and responding. Jesus is teaching us and Peter how to respond when someone sins against us. But reacting is the total opposite. You say, what does reacting look like? Hold your finger here and go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. The Holy Spirit is so kind, he's given us a list with few comments on what reacting looks like. Ephesians 4, look at verse 29. Paul writes, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, how do you grieve the Holy Spirit? First of all, he's talking to Christians. These are saved people that are struggling with anger. We're in good company. What does grieving the Holy Spirit look like? He says, here's what it looks like. Verse 31. Let all bitterness, that's scorekeeping, and wrath, that's being the volcano that explodes over everyone, and anger, that's the slow burn, and clamor, that's when anger gets physical, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's just one verse of a bucket full from Scripture that reinforces our little truth. Any reaction is always sin. Maybe, just maybe, instead of remembering the fingers on your throat, remember the throats on your fingers. You say, well, man, the world just is clueless. They don't understand forgiveness. They don't know God. And, and, and that's true. They're dead, according to Scripture. They need to be given new life like you. We can get quite impatient with the world's reactions over wrongs that they experience. But maybe it would serve us well to consider the possibility of our looking in the mirror today.
is this us? When we are wronged, we launch. We don't listen. Are we guilty? You know, I'm going to borrow the wording of Paul's argument with the Jews in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. What does a non-forgiver look like? There's, there's a mirrored reaction of the world. But there's a second mark of the unforgiver, the non-forgiver. Number two, I'll call it this, a skewed perspective of offenses. A skewed perspective of offenses. I mean, someone who's angry and is a non-forgiver, they, they think that uh, they have every right to be acting this way. But you have to understand, if you're a non-forgiver, people that know your story and your claim of being a disciple of Jesus are looking at you, scratching their head, saying, you don't have a clue what, you, what you're portraying right now in being a bitter person. Because when I say skewed perspective of all offenses, I'm saying that someone who is a non-forgiver believes two little lies, and these two lies justify their bitterness. Lie number one, or letter A, they believe this lie. Big is little. Big is little. Remember what we learned about 10,000 talents last week when we remembered your story? One talent equaled 6,000 days of work. 6,000 denarii. You might only earn one talent Every 15 years, 15 to 20 years, in a lifetime, probably no more than three if you were blessed with long life. And we remember last week, that was a big debt. But someone that, that digs their heels in the ground and says, I will not forgive, I will not even be willing to consider forgiving someone, is someone that's believing this little lie that big is little. I was forgiven so much, but right now, it doesn't mean a lot to me. It might not even be a factor in my thoughts. But there's a second lie they believe at the same time. Not only that big is little, but you can guess the second lie, can't you? Little is big. It's here I need to be careful that you understand something in verse 28. What's the size of the debt that this fellow servant owed this first servant? It says in verse 28, 100 denarii. Quiz time, remember, denarii. How many days do you have to work for one denarii? Say it out loud. One day, right? I work a day and I get a, denari I get a denarius. So if he owed him 100 denarii, that's just about a little over three months' wages. If I find out you've taken three months of my wages, if you're my neighbor, you know, I'm pounding on your door. I'm, I'm pirating your Amazon box off your porch all month long, man. You have, you have three months of... I'm not really going to do that. Now I'm online, so I'm doomed. If you have three months of my paycheck and you won't give it to me, I'm not going to say that's not a big deal. That is a big deal. It's such a big deal, especially if you live in a culture where you live from, by what you earn each day, you and your household, that's a huge deal. 
This is a huge, huge debt the second servant owes the first one. I need you to feel that. Jesus isn't teaching that's little. That's huge. It should be large enough for you to be saying, like I just did, well, my goodness, if, if he has a fourth of my annual income and won't give it back, how would I ever forgive that? It's a good question. It's where Jesus wants you to land. It would be impossible, humanly speaking, unless you had something that was bigger than that that you were forgiven. That's the point. There's a motto that some people live by. To wrong is human. To be wronged is catastrophic. These unforgivers or non-forgivers get offended when even others are offended over their offense. They, non-forgivers, are the keeper of lists. They document all wrongs in their family, in their church, in their marriages, in their friendships. One scholar put it this way, both debts are real, the 10,000 talent and the 100 denarii talent in this passage. Both debts are real, he says. The difference is one is payable and one was unpayable. And he's right. Big is little and little is big. I'll say this, God hates both lies. If I can borrow the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 5.20, we need to keep God's scales with the same priority that God keeps his scales. You say, what do you mean? Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But you know, there's still something else that comes out of the heart of a non-forgiver. The third indicator is a short memory of mercy. A short memory of mercy. Look at verse 29 again. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, word for word, what the first servant said to the king, have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. Oh, I didn't want the story to go this direction. Because remember what Spurgeon said about this first servant earlier in the story. He says he was a lowly suppliant, right? But now, with his fellow servant, he is a hectoring tyrant. You say, what's going on here so soon? I would suggest pastorally that there are two observations. Why is he handling it this way? Why is he reacting like this? Why does he have a short, what do you mean a short memory of mercy? Well, first of all, there's a failure to understand the doctrine. There's a failure to understand the doctrine. You say, what do you mean? Here's where we as Christians in 2023 are reading this story that Jesus gave in Capernaum with his disciples and we have a fuller understanding because of the New Testament as to what is being symbolized here. See, like what? Well, number one, he, he has yet to grasp the guilt that was removed. What do we call that theologically today? Forgiveness. 
The guilt, the debt that was removed is called theological, uh, theologically forgiveness. But there's more. This servant has yet to grasp the debt that was absorbed. Because his debt, and our, our debt, was absorbed. That's the doctrine of the atonement. When Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't just hurting and holding out until he died so that he could make the sin. He was suffering while alive for your sin, the wrath of God that was due you. And when he was finished with that, when that was done, Jesus willed himself dead. The atonement. Number three, he has yet to grasp this new relationship, this relationship that was restored what do we call that theologically? That's reconciliation with the king. There's no debt between us. Number four, he has yet to grasp the declaration that was issued. Theologically, we call that justification. Now the king looks at us as his own son, his own daughter. Number five, he has yet to grasp the motivation that was revealed. What's that doctrine? Oh, it's a sweet doctrine. It's the doctrine of grace. He hasn't grasped forgiveness, atonement, reconciliation, justification, and grace. It's not on his radar. You can wave your hand in front of his face. My wife and I were driving home. <laughs> you don't know I was going to say this. Okay, so Friday, we went to my niece's gradu- or, um, Christmas cantata up in Davidson, Michigan, and then went out for dessert after, and we're driving home late Friday night. And I'm always open to talking to Lori for the hour and 15 minutes. If she wants to talk, I'll talk. If she wants to talk, I'll listen. I'll ask her questions. We'll, have, we'll make it an hour and 15-minute date. That's great. But she knows the minute that she disappears on her phone or asleep, I put the earbud in, and I'm podcasting, man. And we got home. We got to about Brighton. It was a good conversation. Enjoyed our time together, hon. But around Brighton, things got quiet on her side. It was dark in the car. So I literally, I did this in front of her face while I was driving. And there was no response, no panic, so I started podcasting. Um, That's not in my notes, but it's recent. These doctrines, these five doctrines for starters, for someone who is a non-forgiver, I'm promising you, they're not keeping these right here. And you're not isolating this forgetfulness to just one relationship. You treat other offenders in your life the same way. Someone once wrote, ingratitude denotes spiritual immaturity. Infants do not always appreciate that par- what parents do for them. They have short memories. Their concern is not what you did for me yesterday, but what are you doing for me today? The past is meaningless, and so is the future. They live for the present, end quote. The writer of Hebrews gives us words that land with equal weight, uh, except from God, with more weight. Hebrews 5.12, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. There's a failure to understand the doctrine, but secondly, there's a failure to revisit the scene. You say, what do you mean scene? is where you were just standing three minutes ago. In front of the king. I mean, has the door even shut all the way since you left? You went out, came down the stairs, and you were holding on to someone's throat. 
for the rest of your life from the moment that that king said, release him, forgive his debt, I have mercy on him, the rest of your life, you live there in your memories. When you're daydreaming, it's to that moment, the king's hall, where you heard those words. You see, never get over the unpayable debt that was forgiven you, an unworthy servant. Paul never got over it. Paul never got over it. In 1 Timothy 1, if you read 12 through 17, he says, I, I can't get over the fact that I received mercy of all people. David never got over it in the Old Testament. I love his words in Psalm 41 and 2. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. You say, well, when did that happen? Well, he grew up with his faith in Yahweh, of course, and, and he saw this played out time and again against his enemies before and after he was king. But every instance threw him back to this kind of wording of how it all started at the beginning. Mercy and grace from his God. He never got over it. We sang Charles Wesley a few moments ago. He never got over it. He wrote these words in a hymn that we sing. Can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Isaac Watts, we sing his words. He never got over it. See from his head and his hands and his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Where the whole realm of nature mine, and that were a present far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Another hymn writer you might not know the name of, but you know this old hymn, Merrill Dunlop. There's a fountain open for my cleansing, where sin's atonement by my Lord was made. He was the lamb that was taken to the slaughter. His blood, the fountain where my debt was paid, opened for me. Opened for me, the precious cleansing fount was opened there for me. These gospel truths are not merely to bounce off the surface once in a while in your life. These gospel truths are to penetrate deeply the rest of your life. Revisit the scene often. You say, how do I do that? Come to the Lord's table in two weeks. That's what the Lord's table does. Read your Bible every day. Read the Gospels. Gather for corporate worship. Sing these songs in your car. Keep that scene right here. Something that's really sad in this text, so sad, is the same words used pleading for mercy. 18, look at verse... 26, have patience with me. I will repay you everything. You see that? And then verse 29, have patience with me, and I will repay you. Same words. 
and it's just a matter of minutes, and the first slave doesn't even remember. But it gets, it gets worse. The language is saying that he was repeating that plea. It was persistent. It was a persistent pleading met with a persistent refusal. Wow. Well, we have to finish. We have one more sign that comes out of an unforgiver's, a non-forgiver's heart. And it's a quiet desire for suffering. A quiet desire for suffering. Look at verse 30. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. It's interesting. Prison was his only option. It was his only option since selling, having him sold into slavery would have only brought in 500 denarii and the debt was only 100 denarii. What do we do with this prison? What do you mean? What do you mean quiet desire for suffering? First of all, there's an unreasonable expectation. I mean, you see it, right? How is he supposed to earn money and pay off his debt in prison? I mean, yeah, there could be forced labor back in that day, but get the main point of the parable. How is he supposed to pay you back if he's incarcerated? That's letting us see that there's an unreasonable expectation here, but in addition to that, there's an undeniable agenda revealed. The minute he put him in prison, it revealed what was the motive of his heart. You see, when you and I don't forgive, we, won't, we are non-forgiver of people who sin against us. You know what we do? We place ourselves. watch this, we place ourselves over our debtor. Instead of beside them as, listen, a fellow servant. Have you noticed Jesus repeating that phrase? He said fellow servant in verse 28 and 29 to emphasize something, and it's going to be said two more times. So what we have is someone of equal status underneath the king, watch this, saying, I'm going to be your king by not forgiving you. The reality, the reality is you, you don't have plans to forgive at all. There's even a joy in having people owe you and making them suffer, remaining in debt, puts you on top. But maybe we should lean into the, that little phrase, fellow slave, that our Lord has up to this point repeated twice. Is it possible when we're non-forgivers that we forget that the other person's sin against us is actually and ultimately a sin not against us? It's not a debt to us, it's a debt to God. The king of both of us. Peter's going to use this picture of a fellow saint, a fellow sufferer, a fellow servant, excuse me, with his wording, the fellow heir, talking about a marriage in 1 Peter 3, 7. That's what comes out of the heart of a non-forgiver. One thing's for sure, we might have finished last week our second stop, encouraged about the great debt that was forgiven, but we finish this study 
noting that some dark clouds are gathering and forming over the sky. And maybe those clouds are over you now, too. As a non-forgiver, you and I would have liked to have written a different story after verse 27. Jesus says, we need this one. When we are wronged, does what come out of us, what comes out of our heart, look anything like what comes out of this guy's heart? When it comes to family, marriage, church, relationships, political persuasions, do we reflect a mirrored reaction of the world, a skewed perspective of offenses, a short memory of mercy, or a quiet desire for suffering? Because if so, Proverbs 28, 13 says, if we cover our transgressions, we will not prosper. But if we confess them and forsake them, we'll have mercy. We'll have mercy. So how do we get to the point where we can forgive that person? By starting the journey over here. Admit your hesitancy. Remember your story. And guard your heart. Father, thank you again for how you've loved Peter and us by getting this pointed in this text where we thought the parable would end last week, it's really getting started. And the spotlight is on one who has been forgiven, not forgiving others. Help us to work through what you would have us repent of. Now three stops into this journey so that we will be free to forgive when the time comes. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.